Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from Fos Church. We pray this message blesses and encourages you. If you don't belong to a local church, we would love to see you on Sunday morning. We are at the point in our series, Reconstructing, where we are discussing sex and sexuality today. And um, kind of the, some, 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 some of the things I've shared this morning with the band or, or just some of you is, is what could go wrong this morning? <laughs> you know, you've got 40 minutes to talk about such a broad topic in our society and culture and, you know, are we going to talk about drag queens today? Are we going to talk about transgenderism? Are we gonna... and, and there's a lot that could be said. A, a whole series could be built out on uh, a subject like the one we are going to talk about. Um, and so I only have got 40 minutes. And uh, the service is just going to be a little bit different than normal. Um, we are going to use Bible verses. We will talk about the scriptures. Um, but a large part of it is going to be having a real cultural conversation today. And where does the church fit in? And where's our voice? And how do, how do we communicate about something that, that's so relevant in society? And, and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I wanna be so careful today because there's been a lot of hurt surrounding this conversation. And yet we've been called to be bold. We've been called to be clear. And so um, I believe there's beauty and clarity. And so we'll look at God's design. Um, but before we do that, I want to speak to the fact that we, we have, in regards to sexual ethics within our society, there's a stronghold. And I don't know about you, and I don't know how much time you devote to praying for our upcoming generations, but I, I would urge you to make that a part of your prayer life to be praying for generations that are coming up that are being conditioned to believe things about sex, sexuality, and sexual ethics that are so confusing and contrary to the word of God. I just wanna take a moment and pause and pray for our generations that are coming up and I hope that you would join me in that right now. But Lord, we just pause. We pause because we believe that your word leads to life. We believe that the parameters you've given us in your word don't rob us, but they give to us. And so Lord, will we trust that? Will we be a church that trusts that? And all the while, Lord, will we be a place where longings and desires can be wrestled with? Or that we would be a place where we can point where longings and desires can be satisfied? And Lord, I pray for these young generations that are coming up in a world of chaos, in a world of change, in a world of confusion. Lord, would the church be a safe and healthy place? And Lord, would we receive grace in the places where the church has failed in this area to be a haven for the broken. Lord, would we be forgiven of that? Not us individually, specifically, but collectively, Lord, as this, the church. And Lord, would we see your ethics, your design become beautiful again. That we would see that permeate throughout our culture as something that's good. We pray all this in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, 
question for you, uh, and I, I promise this, this is going somewhere. Um, but what's your favorite restaurant? Favorite place to eat? Like when you go there, you know that the cook there somehow has been informed about your taste buds, right? <laughs> like they know how to satisfy what savors in your mouth, right? I mean, I'll give you a second to think about that. Um, but, you know, my wife and I, we have a day apart in our birthdays. It was this week, so we got to have those discussions. Where's your favorite place to go and eat? And uh, we got to go to those restaurants this week, and I love going out to a good, good restaurant. And now that I've given you a moment to think about what your favorite place is, I, I wonder for how many of you, when I asked that question, Arby's came to your mind. Sub, Subway. You know, um, we can get a little bit classier. Um, Olive Garden, you know, unlimited breadsticks and salad. Or, or Subway, the, 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 the now $25 foot long. Um, seriously, have you been to Subway lately? It's like not cheap. Like I, I, a few weeks back I was at one and I get to the cash register, like it's like 1974. I'm like, that is ridiculous. Uh, but... And I want you, hopefully you answered that question not with money in mind. Like, like, money's not an option. You get to go to the place that, that just gets you. Well, it's probably some place maybe that's independent, not a, not, a, not a chain. And I'm not scoffing at Red Lobster or Olive Garden, but, but that's not what gets my taste buds more than any place else. You know, we, we kind of love those mom and pop shop restaurants. And, and here's, here's something to say about the difference in the distinguishment between um, mom and pop shop, independent restaurants, and franchises. I, I don't think independent restaurants fail to go franchise because they just aren't good at business. That's not always the case. Sometimes, when, in, the, in their lens, if I go from an independent restaurant to a franchise, so much of what we do has to change. So, so much has to get broadened out. And can you keep that same quality? Can you keep that same beauty, the same allurement that, that people, the product lo- that people love so much? Well, generally, oftentimes, no, that, that's not possible, right? When, when you see, when you begin seeing the change, there, there's too much that you, we're talking about two different games here between the independent and the franchise, and so when you think about change, currently in our society, we've experienced a lot of change. All the while, we live in a society and a culture that is experiencing record highs of anxiety and depression. Psychologists and sociologists would say that we are um, living in what they would call a mental health epidemic. And, and so I want you to see that the, the, there is a correlation to the change that we're experiencing within society and, and, and this emotional anxiety that is permeating in our culture and world. Um, there have been sociological studies done that would show that out of all of the generations and all of the cultures in human history, that not a generation has experienced more change than the generations that have proceeded from the 1960s. Like if you're a generation part beyond 1960, you have lived within a culture, within a society that's experienced more change than any generation in human history. 
I, I mean, just think about the last half of this past, uh, this past half of this past decade, the last 60 years, what we've seen, the internet, email, texting, AI, transportation, post-Christian culture, gay marriage, civil rights, terrorism, globalism, third wave coffeeism. We've been talking about that. You know, it's that whole snobbery of like, is it Tim Hortons or Starbucks? Like, we, we, we've experienced it's no longer Folgers. Folgers is not coffee, right? If, you're, if your cup of coffee doesn't cost you $9, it's not real coffee. All of this has been changed within the society, culture, and world that we live in, and the list could keep going on with change, and I think no wonder there isn't, there's so much social unrest and emotional anxiety within our culture. I, I mean, how are you supposed to adapt and adopt all of these different ideas? And while there's all these various facets of, of change within culture, probably none more glaring than the changes that we've seen within sex and sexuality in our sexual ethics. Right, I mean, post 1960s, we 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 called it, we framed it as a revolution. Right, you're, you're, some of you in your generation, you experienced the, the sexual revolution, where what God had defined and what God had designed needed to get broader than that definition. We needed to go from an independent to a franchise model within our society and culture. And I'm telling you, and what I want to share with us is is we're talking about two different things, two different games. We are not defining the same thing. What, what we're talking about, what culture's talking about are different. But church, if we are not careful, th this can be one of the greatest areas where we have fumbled in our recent history. To not be able to have these kinds of conversations, to not be able to wrestle but um, John Tyson, Pastor John Tyson in New York City, he's, he's often um, not only just been pegged as a, as a pastor, but also as a cultural commentator right in the heart of Manhattan. And, and he has shared um, four detachments, four changes that we've seen within the confines of sex in our society in these last 60 years. And so um, we have seen, number one, we have seen a detachment from the idea that sex is connected to childbearing and family. Right, that, that sounds like a taboo, archaic, like beaver cleaver kind of definition for sex. How, how, how dare, uh, you're saying it's not just about my satisfaction, you're saying it's not just about my desires and my cravings? Man, it feels really good, pastor. You know, and so what, it, Shouldn't that be its intended purpose? It can be easy to forget, but birth control is a very, very new idea within human history. Like the first oral contraceptive that the FDA approved happened in 1960. 1960, like that, that's how new we're talking about, 60 years ago. A dozen years later in 1972 is when the Supreme Court ruled legislation for contraceptives to be legal for singles. So 12 years, there was a span where contraceptives are being used, but unless you were, had a spouse, unless you were married, if you were a single, it was illegal. Well, why? Because what cultures and societies had believed throughout human history was that sex was given for childbearing and families. 
So, so we're starting to see maybe the culture is saying, well, no, it needs to get broader than that. We need to open the door for more than just that definition. We need to give it to people that, that are needing satisfaction to have their desires fulfilled. And so this is, this is a shift from what we see in Genesis 1.28. The first time sex get introduced to the story, it says that God blessed them in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and he um, gave the man and the woman to become one. That the two would become one. He said, be fruitful and multiply. When sex gets introduced to the story, God gave a, a pretty specific purpose for what that would then be intended for. Not that it's void of pleasure, but that it has a purpose within it, and the purpose is multiplying, and we've quickly seen the rejection of this idea in our society and culture to use, again, to use this kind of language is to be viewed as archaic, oppressive, and suppressive. The second disconnect that we have seen is the disconnection of sex and marriage. It's no longer defined for the husband and the wife. I mean, this is, this is a definition that's getting loose, not just in the culture, but in the church as well, where we're not adamantly clear that God gave sex to the husband and to the wife, not just to the man and to the woman, but to the husband and to the wife. For this reason, the man will leave father and mother and cling to his what? To his woman? To his wife clings to his wife and they have become one flesh. There's something so profound that happens within sex that, that God had given it for something that was permanent, not interchangeable, that the two would become one, not that the two would become two, three, four, some open definition. And, and again, these generations that are coming up, it is not uncommon to hear of Gen Z, millennials, that are in what's termed as an open relationship. Yeah, there's no, there's no commitment here. There's no exclusivity here. You know, we're, we're open in our relationship. And again, I think, again, our society and culture is training us to think this way based on the entertainment that gets put in front of our eyes. We have shows that broadcast polygamy and we're being told that it's normal. When you talk about the Bachelor and Bachelorette and these shows that are so entertaining. But if you start saying that, that, that this could be like demonic, you start sounding like a quack. But we've been conditioned to say, no, 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 well, it's not really like that. No, the Bachelor and Bachelorette aren't hiding their agenda. It's pretty clear what the show's about. Here's your options. Have it your way. What fits best? Right? I, I mean, just try it out. Who, who makes you feel right? That's the definition that's moving from husband and wife to whoever makes me feel good. And that's a dangerous definition. There's a dangerous definition that, why? Because there's lots of people that can make you feel good within marriage that aren't your spouse. If we don't define it for the husband and the wife, we've opened the door for infidelity to run loose. And I do believe there's a correlation in a relationship if we don't define sex for the husband and the wife for infidelity to run wild in our world and our culture. Um, during this week, during my prep, one of the things that I Googled was infidelity pre and post 1960. 
And one of the things that came up was an article from the New York Times that was dated in 1999, but literally the title of the article was Infidelity is Coming Out of the Closet. It's the title of the article, you can still go read it online. And within the article, what they share about is a study that was done, conducted at the University of Chicago in 1994. I get we're talking datedness, but I'm gonna tell you what, I don't think we're getting better from 1994. Uh, so in 1994, this University of Chicago conducted this survey that said that about 25% of men were actively involved in an infidelity relationship. 12% of women, and the study was very clear that these were conservative estimates, and that was 1994. That was 30 years ago, 30 years ago. And what the study at University of Chicago said was that there wasn't much data pre-1960 to compare that to. And then they said, you know what, there's good chances that it hasn't really risen that much, that you know there was prior to that, you know, Men were having re relationships with their secretaries and the wife was at home. And so you know, they're saying, we, we don't suppose that it's grown all that much. But one of the things the article did say was that psychologists, sociologists, and therapists all have commented in, the ones that they had surveyed, and said that what we were moving into was the golden age of infidelity. Something that was soon going to be celebrated. And I want to share with you this conversation that happened for me a few uh, weeks back. Um, I had a friend from high school that was coming into town, and so we all got together and um, uh, had lunch. Now, uh, I want to share one other thing. A, a few years ago, my best friend from high school, man, we talked more than anybody else. We had such a strong bond. He calls me up, and we hadn't talked in years, and the first thing he tells me is to let me know that he's in an extramarital affair. He's, he's dating a married woman, and her husband's gonna find out tonight. Um, and lo and behold, um, the woman he was having the relationship with, with was married to the richest man in Michigan. Estimations net worth of $14 billion. I said, dude, this guy can have you erased. Like, like you never existed. And you might be great at Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but that doesn't mean a whole lot when a car rolls up on you and a gun comes out. You know, I mean, that's just the reality of it. And, and so as he shares this, years later, what I can see on social media is that divorce hasn't happened due to financial reasons. And him and her are still in a relationship and they get to travel the world to all these exotic and tropical places. And so fast forward to a couple weeks ago, when I'm at this lunch with, these, with these, this crew from a Christian school, mind you. We all went to a Christian school. The conversation was, literal words that were used, was good for him. He saw what he wanted and he went and got it. This is the banner of our culture. That is not unique to that group of people. This is what our culture thinks. You want to have your urge satisfied? Well, go and pursue it. Have it your way. Chase it at all costs. This is not unique, and yet what we see from God's design in Genesis 2, 24, for this reason a man will leave father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Sex 
and God's design is seen within the confines of marriage. There's a, a parameter surrounding it that th it works best this way. The, the, the third disconnect that we've seen in regards to sex is that sex is no longer between man and women, which, which is wild when you think about the legislation of same-sex marriage. It's less than a decade old. But I, get, I would bet for most of you, you would feel as that conversation has been much longer than the last decade, right? It's existed for, for since the 1980s when you really saw the LGBTQ movement growing in popularity. This is not a, a, a new conversation. And fourth, lastly, this is another monumental disconnect and shift. And it's, it's really, again, seeing, being seen in the younger generations, but that sex is disconnected from love emotional and relational commitment of any kind. If we think of what's referred to as hookup culture, the apps, I, I mean, when I was in my young adult years, I mean, like Tinder was the thing. It was the app that was cool. It was popular. And Tinder, though, started out as a dating relationship to, to find someone to date online through an app, quickly became, I'm just swiping left or swiping, is it left or right? Okay, we'll pray for you, whoever said that. <laughs> and, but, you know, when you think about it, we just swipe saying, okay, who can I find for a night? Who can I find for this satisfying of my urges and my desires and my wants? But as quickly as the individual will come, as quickly as they go. This wasn't something based on love. It wasn't based on any kind of relationship or commitment. The book, of, the, the, book the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, a, a book about uh, relationship and marriage and sex and God's good design, Solomon would use as what the Hebrews would refer as the, the mingling of souls. There was a permanency of coming together and a relational commitment. Now, with all of these four shifts, I think it's important for us to know something. These shifts are not new. People have been sleeping around for millennia. I mean, the prostitution is an age-old thing. People have tried to find themselves and their ways around the, the two pink lines. I mean, these are not new shifts within the culture. Uh, gay relationships are all over Greek mythology, and gender fluidity has a long history in indigenous cultures. But here's the shift. Here's what's new. It's become more and more that people are not just presenting these as ideas that they, that they can choose for themselves, but these are shifts as moral progress. We are seeing these things as normative, as liberation, liberation from tradition and religion and gender roles. In fact, if you have a traditional understanding of sexuality, you know, that, that marriage was a man and a woman in a covenant relationship called marriage, um, th then you're behind with the times, right? Th th that is archaic to believe that. And, and the view of being behind is at best. The, the, the larger population would say that this view needs to be rebuked and repaired. And though sex has been redefined by our society and our culture, that we have gone from what God has designed as good and he declared it holy and he called for us to enjoy it, has broadened out to be something entirely different. And, and when you look at these four shifts, my argue is that we have not gotten better 
because of it. Sociology, there's been, again, sociological studies that show that in every year we are increasing a lower percentage of people that are actually sexually active, which is kind of hard to fathom knowing how obsessed we are as a culture of, uh, of sex and how sex sells and how we need to franchise it and broaden it, and yet we're experiencing less of it. That, that could be because of the rise of the pornography industry, but I'm telling you it's not because there's been some moral epiphany about how, how we've been misusing our sexual ethics. And what I think that we, as church, I think one thing that we can celebrate here in that is, as, as it's been redefined, as it's been, as it's been uh, given new parameters, and we're seeing less sexual activity as a society, what you're seeing is a sexual ethic fail. This whole idea of run wild, to satisfy your desires, make it about you, is not winning the day. It's what's loud, it's what's prominent, but it is not better than God's design. The world is trying to make sex all about you, but in God's good design, sex is to teach us more about the goodness of God, and it ought to, within God's design, form us and our worship of him. God created sex and he said it was not only good, not only did he create it, but then he commands it. I want you to look at that as Genesis 1.28 again. That God blessed them and said, he told them, be fruitful and multiply. Is there a greater commandment than that? Be fruitful and multiply, that we would actually be able to enjoy God's good design. And again, not void of pleasure. Right, he literally calls it blessing, that God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. That there was a blessing with sex that God gave his creation. And so when Genesis 4, 1 comes into play where it says that Adam knew Eve and they conceived a son, God, it wasn't like God looked away for a few seconds, looked back and saw Adam on Eve and was like, dude, Adam, what are you doing? Like, like sex wasn't a man idea, it was a God idea. And it was a God commandment, and it was to be used within his design. And so this passage we literally just read calls it a, a blessing. And God meant it for good and blessing. And we see the distortion of it within our society and culture, and that distortion will never lead to the same level of enjoyment. The moment you broaden beyond what God has designed, you've created something entirely different. And so I guess what I'm trying to draw out this morning is, is in how we're going to spend the, the remaining few moments that we have together is to talk about the relationship of sexuality and spirituality, the connection of our longings and our desires and our faith. Author Rich Velotis, um, who, who pastors in Brooklyn, notes that throughout history there has been a divorce between religion and eros. He writes, like all divorces, it was painful, and in all divorces, the property got divvied up. Religion got to keep God, and the secular got to keep sex. The secular got passion, and God got chastity. It's important to note that the usage of the word chastity, Velotus is critiquing the popular notions uh, of how chastity is understood, not diminishing its powerful and sacred way of life, but, it, but his point's well taken. The, the question is, how do we remarry religion and eros, or said another way, how do we rejoin and remarry spirituality and sexuality in ways that lead to a greater wholeness 
in our relationship with God and with our community around us, with others. And again, as I shared up front, we as the church, we have to be a place that's ready to wrestle with longings and desires. They're real, and, the, and to have a longing and desire isn't inherently wrong, but we have to order those desires under God's, under God. If you wanna see how those longings and desires are, are most satisfied, it's gonna be in God's way and in God's design. And so I guess the question is, how do we balance this? And, and if we're talking the balance of sexuality and spirituality, um, to continue with kind of our opening illustration of, of restaurants, I, I think we should talk about it in the ways of a diet. In the ways of a diet, a healthy diet, a balanced diet. Most nutritionists would share that, that the best diet you could have is one that's balanced where you don't go too extreme in one way or the other. But the, the challenge is in talking about diets, like most nutritionists would share, uh, their way is the best way, and all others are wrong. And so it, it's really hard to, uh, at times, talk about it without ostracizing every other idea or thought. But, but the best diet is a, is a balanced diet. And so if we think about it through that lens, if we think about it through, you know, sharing our view, our ideas, um, I think we need to talk about how, what diet has the world historically heard from the church? You know, how have we, how have we jumbled things up within our society and culture? And then we're gonna share the diet that the church, the alternative that the, 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 the culture has given from the church, and lastly, what I believe that we need to get to is a diet that will be good for human flourishing in the days to come. And so, um, the starvation diet is the first diet. <clears throat> this seems safe, right? If you're thinking about losing weight, oftentimes we think, okay, well, I'm going to starve myself. Um, some of you know, uh, in the last few years, I, I've kind of gone on different weight loss journeys and you know, kind of stumble, and then I get back on the wagon, and then I stumble and get back on the wagon. Well. At times when I've tried to get really serious about losing weight, I've tried to get so serious about cal calorie intake. But you know the danger in that? You know the danger about starving yourself is? Is your, your body will literally go into preservation mode. And so you won't be burning calories while you're starving yourself, and every time you get back on the scale and you're wondering, why isn't it going down? I hardly ate anything. It's because your body's literally saying, I'm gonna hold on to what I need because you're not giving me what I need. And so if, if we look at sexual desires through that lens and we say, okay, let's just starve these longings, starve these desires, and let's just suppress them, oppress them, and don't talk about them, don't lead them anywhere, it's gonna lead to secret lives, it's gonna lead to, to distortions. And within the starvation diet, many in the church live on a starvation diet. Um, and this kind of theology permeates our churches so much so that even to talk about the, the desire, sex, longing, and eros, is done in whispers. Uh, I shared that with the band this morning before uh, I said, I, this is uncomfortable for me because this is a taboo topic in the church. Very rarely do you find churches that are saying, yeah, let's talk about sex and sexuality in the world we live in. We've been told to be quiet about that kind of stuff. 
And so um, what that has led to is, is generations saying, okay, if all I have is what I've heard from my school, all I've had to hear from my culture, and the church doesn't talk about it, where do you think they're going to turn to? What, what do you think is going to feed those desires and those longings? Instead, the church being the community and place to help people make sense of their longings, it teaches that longings are antithetical to a robust spirituality. Sadly, the church, arguably the evangelical church, historically has, done not, has not done a good job on teaching on sexuality and desire. Um, and, and, and I think what, what, what has, this has come out of is that um, historically, the church hasn't known how to talk about desires, that all desires are generally bad. And so we, we don't, it's why we struggle with things like Sabbath. Like, like Sabbath is a, a time that is supposed to um, teach us about worship of God and the cultivation of delight. But if we don't know how to talk about desires and delights, going to kind of stay away from those kinds of practices. And so most have been formed in ways that show very little value on delight. You know, we're all about the glory of God. Can't talk about the delight and the desires of my heart. Because it's all about God's glory. You think God's not trying to lead his children into delight? I think he's trying not to, to lead us into what's good. The starvation diet leads to the suppression of sexual desires, establishing a culture where people can't be honest about longings, loneliness, and passion. And as a result, many live in the shadows. And so in order to survive, many subscribe to this diet in the end, living, end up living secret lives, looking for outlets to meet their longings. Church, we have to be safe. We can't be afraid. Next, the alternative diet. This is a diet that sounds and looks exciting and maybe gives temporary pleasure and it's what the world has to offer and it's the fast food diet. Anybody like fast food? I like fast food. <laughs> Convenient, often tasty, typically sad later, right? And that is the diet of sexual desire that our, that our world is teaching our young people. It's all about pleasure and immediate gratification through indulgence of the flesh. The diet says whatever you desire, if you desire to have it met, then go for it. Does it feel right? If it doesn't feel right, give it up. Go for what makes you feel right. The fast food diet in a phrase is all about flippant posture, and it, um, about the flippant posture people have towards sex and sexuality. It's the inability or refusal to see sex as a sacred fire. Fire's not a bad thing, it can be a really good thing, it can show light and it can give you direction, it can give you warmth, it can give you what you, what you need. But if, it, if, if, it does, if, if you don't view it that way, if you, if you don't view it as, as uh, Carl just shared, that, that purification element, that, that God does use it in a way to form us and shape us, to lead us in a way of worship, if we don't see it through that lens, it will end up burning people. You treat fire flippantly. You don't play with fire. You learned that at a very young age. Guess what? Sex is fire. It is. And fire can be a really, really good thing. And it can also be a thing that burns people and communities. 
if there's no discernment regarding our bodies, our souls, and if we split those areas, it's different than the starvation diet, but similar. In the starvation diet, the soul is exalted to the point of denying the body. In the fast food diet, the body is exalted to the point of denying the soul. Sexuality and spirituality are not meant to be separated. They are together. Paul writes about this in Philippians 3, 18 to 19 on, the, on this idea of the fast food diet. He says, for I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. If all we see sex is something that's physical and not spiritual, that, that way of life makes sense. It's all about my appetite. It's all about my urges. It's all about my satisfaction. The danger of the fast food diet is it's a cheap imitation of the banquet, which is the third diet. And although you might feel full for a moment, too much fast food will make you sick. The other danger is that um, is the empty hope we project on the fulfillment of those sexual desires, right? Like if we're saying, hey, I want my desires met, and we say, well, here's how you have them met, well, then you go and do that only to find it to be empty. The fast food diet will leave you empty. The fast food diet doesn't see the bigger picture of what's actually happening. It doesn't know how to satisfy that desire because it's not in that mindset. It's not in the full picture, in the words of C.S. Lewis, he says this, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is a th such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The starvation diet does not have a theological imagination for what could be, go beyond just the physical act of pleasure. They don't have this idea that this desire teaches us about God. The fast food diet regulates God to sexual desire. The starvation diet again, has no theological imagination to see sexual desire as a means towards God. Both miss the point. And so lastly, the, the, the diet that I believe that we need to step into as a church is the banquet, the balanced diet. The gospel points us to a great banquet where all of life can be met and satisfied. Jesus came and he offered a great banquet and he went to these people and he invited them to the banquet and also, oh no, I'm gonna go do this other thing. There was something else they thought could take priority over the banquet. And every time we choose an ideal or we imagine something other than God's design, what we've done is we've traded that beautiful independent restaurant for Arby's. We've traded it for something that doesn't make sense. We've traded it for something cheaper and less beautiful. The gospel offers us a banquet. The kingdom of God is a feast. It's a feast. That's what we see in Revelation. That's the world we are moving toward. It's a feast of communion with God, which leads 
to a feast of communion with others. The gospel message is that all of life, through, de- uh, through the death, burial, and resurrection, ascension of Jesus is a gift to be enjoyed and ultimately points us to God. I, I, I love the um, book, Desiring God, by John Piper. It's all about Christian hedonism. It's about finding your soul, joy, and satisfaction in Christ himself. It's not that um, every desire that I have is a God-given desire that hasn't been distorted. No, like, desires can be distorted. But when God is your joy, when God is your hope, and God's what you desire, he satisfies. He can satisfy all those hopes, all those dreams, all those longings. In the banquet, we are reminded that from the very beginning that humanity was made for community with others and intimacy with God and others. We've often misplaced our longings and we've reaped consequences. Again, societally, we are not getting better at love and sex. No, we've seen distortions and we experience consequences. And the sexual desires we possess remain. They still exist. They're not going anywhere. But when the sexual desires we possess are ordered rightly, they bring us into communion with God. In this respect, the love of God doesn't remove our desires. It reorders them. It doesn't remove our desires. It reorders them. The banquet is the recognition that that we were created for enjoyment, to enjoy God forever. Heaven will be a place of eternal worship where around the throne of God they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is our object of worship. He is where we find all of our desires ordered rightly. The starting point and the end point of our desire is God, if, if we are to experience what Jesus calls the fullness of life. And so the gospel reminds us that the banquet is also open to all. It's an invitation to all that maybe have come into this place and are looking to have their joys and longings and satisfactions met. You've, be, you've been invited in. You've been invited to experience the fullness of life. And I pray that we see the sexual ethics of our day continue to fail. I think they have to. I think, you know, I think that, that if, you, if we broaden for so long with things that aren't godly, they will fail. Give it enough time, it will fail. That, that's just human history. That's just human history where, where, where you've seen when, when a culture rejects God ideals and have decided to do their own ways and their own things. I don't know of a society that's, that's lasted doing that. Again, because none of this is new. There's nothing new under the sun. Like, like these are not ideas that we conjured up post-1960s. It's just that we as a society and culture are now deeming these things as moral progress. But church, we don't have to be so reactive to the culture. Do you know what I mean when I'm saying that? 
if the culture sees our response is not something... What I'm gonna petition and call us to is let's be proud of our product. Let's be proud of our product. Let's believe that God's design is good and it leads to the fullness of life. But unfortunately, sadly, a few days ago, literally this week, I saw this on Apple News. A young transgender girl got beat to death at school. And my heart broke when I read that article. How sad that that's the response. That that we have no ability as, as people at large to look at people that maybe have different longings and different desires. And not to come alongside. Why would we treat people that way? in the church, and I'm not saying that we're responsible for the death of that young teenager. But what is our response to a culture that sexual ethics are so different? It can't be that we're throwing stones. It has to be that we believe in the power of Jesus and that he is better. We're not here to beat people, hurt people. Our, we get to invite them in the world and the culture to more. And we believe that Jesus leads to the fullness of life. And you're here, and, and maybe none of this conversation even pertains to you, but you're here, and you're just wrestling about life in general, and you say, hey, I'm trying to figure out life. I'm trying to figure out its meaning. I'm trying to figure out how to have my longings and desires satisfied. It'll only be in Jesus. Only he offers the fullness of life, and he invites you into that, that if the invitation is to come and follow him, That's what he gave his disciples. That's what he gives us. And as we follow him, that we would become like him, that we would look to imitate our Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. And he can transform your life and he can give you a whole new life. That's the offer that Jesus gives. Not life in the way the world defines it, but life in the way that Jesus shows us. And so... If you never have today, I would call you to surrender your life to him because he's not looking to steal from you or rob from you. He's looking to lead you to the fullness of life. John 10, 10.